This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Incredibly unsavory text of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I've noted many times over the years that consecutive expository preaching forces you to preach texts that you wouldn't normally gravitate towards. And I promise you, this is a text you wouldn't normally gravitate towards. And yet, it is an incredibly important text. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, this passage is, uh, although it is uh, an unpleasant passage, as we'll see in some detail, it is an incredibly important passage. In fact, I think that it would be safe to say that it is an incredibly neglected passage in the church today, uh, along with, of course, Matthew 18, 15 and following, and other passages such as Romans 16 or 2 Thessalonians 3, all which teach different uh, aspects of church discipline. Some of you will remember um, that in the late 80s, during the Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart scandals, um, there was a a panel that actually was televised on, I think it was on ABC or something, uh, and John MacArthur was there, and then the late uh, D. James Kennedy was there. You guys remember D. James Kennedy from the um, 
uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And something that Dr. Kennedy said has always uh, stayed with me, probably because of the quaint way that he said it. But he said, church discipline today is deader than a dodo bird. Deader than a dodo bird. Of course, I think if we take this passage seriously, to say that church discipline is dead is to say that the church is in incredible danger of destroying itself. It used to be that the reformers would say that there are three marks of a true gospel church. The first mark is that the gospel is actually preached. You can't be a real church unless the gospel is actually preached. And then the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are observed. And third, the third mark of a true church was that discipline was practiced. If those are the three marks of a true church, then I have to wonder that a lot of places that we call churches are not churches at all. They're just assemblies of people with special affinities with one another. Well, this passage is, is actually a, somewhat of a new section. So one to four forms a unit. Five and six form a unit. But it is important to note that although this is the next section, it's not unrelated to what Paul's been talking about. In fact, if you look back at chapter 4, um, in, in verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant, puffed up, in behalf of one against the other. Go to the end of the chapter. Paul says, verse 18, Now some have become arrogant, literally puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, puffed up, but their power. And then chapter 5, verse 2, you have become arrogant, puffed up. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. So although the, the, the unit itself is, is going on to address... Um, other issues than what were addressed in chapters 1 through 4, there is definitely a connection, and that is Paul is continuing on this issue of the Corinthians being puffed up. In fact, I think chapter 5 ends up giving us a specific example of the Corinthians' unwarranted arrogance and pride and their false uh, spiritual uh, let's see, puffiness, right? By the way, there, there may well be a little play on words because you might know that the, that the term spiritual, of course, pneumaticos, comes from the word pneuma, spirit, which can mean also wind. And so to be puffed up uh, is, in a sense, to be filled with nothing but wind. And we would say, you know, filled with gas or something, right? And so here, uh, Paul is continuing on with this issue of the Corinthians and their pride. Now, I think that what happens in verses or chapters 5 and 6 is this. 
Paul's going to deal with three very specific situations. So he's going to deal with the case of incest in 5, 1 through 3. Then 6, 1 through 11, he's going to deal with lawsuits. Christians suing each other. Now we might think, ah, no big deal. But for Paul, this is actually a really big deal. All right? And then... Chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, he deals with prostitution and sexual immorality. Now, I think that Paul deals with these three situations in the Corinthian church to actually, in a sense, deflate their false pride. Because here they were, arrogant and puffed up, and yet, morally, they're a train wreck. Morally, they're actually living so contrary to the gospel that, uh, that, that Paul uses these examples, in a sense, to kind of push upon them the, um, the, the reality that they should actually be humbled because of what's happening uh, in their midst, it, not to mention humiliated. Each one of these issues, this relationship that Paul's going to talk about, um, Christians suing each other, and then the idea of visiting prostitutes and, and general sexual immorality. Each, each of these issues actually impacts the church's testimony with the world. It's interesting, even though the world obviously doesn't share our morals and our values, when Christians don't live up to what they say they believe, the world takes notice. Whether the world agrees with those values or not, the fact is is that when we don't live up to them, the world looks at the church and just says, you are just simply a bunch of hypocrites. And so the church's behavior is, is not supposed to make a bad impression on the world. In fact, when Christians behave badly, so let, let's just take this as a given. Will Christians behave badly? Until Jesus comes back, Christians will behave badly. But when Christians behave badly and the church does nothing about it, then it is a negative reflection not only on the church, but it's also a negative reflection on the gospel and on Christ himself. And I think, as we go through this passage, that that one of the things that Paul finds so horrifying is not just the sin in question, but the fact that the Corinthian church had done nothing about it. And as they had done nothing about it, they actually were putting themselves in incredible danger as a church. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to humble themselves before the Lord, And so he's going to use these three situations to attempt to to deflate their pride. Now, the first situation that Paul deals with, chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, is uh, just simply horrifying. Now, a number of interesting preliminary things about this passage. Paul is not predominantly concerned with the offender in this passage. He's going to deal with the offender, and and we're going to see in somewhat of a unique way, using language that is is somewhat hard to understand, but his primary focus is not the offender himself. His primary focus is actually on the church's arrogant moral laxity. That's what he really sets his sights on. And so as, as, as he deals with this, he is going to focus not so much on the, 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 the 
awful, depraved nature of the sin as much as their own proud tolerance. In fact, in their arrogance, here's the irony, they're destroying themselves. All the while thinking they're incredibly spiritual. The irony is is that they're destroying themselves because they not only are ignoring sin in the assembly, but they're also thereby ignoring what it means to have new life in Christ. To actually ignore sin under the banner of tolerance is, is, is an arrogance that absolutely eclipses the gospel. So this section deals with church discipline. And uh, you you can see the way the passage unfolds. So there's the report of immorality in verse 1. Paul's rebuke for the Corinthians' inappropriate response in verse 2. And then verses 3 to 5, we have Paul's apostolic and judicial action, which really is sort of a, a fascinating thing when you start wondering what Paul means, that he's there in spirit and so forth. Um, And and then the next section, Paul rebukes their boasting and their ignorance, verse 6. And then there's an exhortation to clean out the old and to celebrate the new, verses 7 through 8. And then the last paragraph is an explanation of Paul's previous instruction on what he meant by not associating with the immoral. All right? And so, as we come to this text, really Paul's ultimate goal is to get the Corinthians to properly deal with the offender... Which means, first, understanding God's holiness. Second, the depth of sin. Third, the danger of the sin. Purification of the body. And then the hope of restoration. By the way, those, those five things are always the five things that should concern us when it comes to church discipline. Okay? So I'll say them again. God's holiness. The depth of the sin the danger of the sin for the body, the purification of the body, hence its witness to the world, and then the hope of restoration for the the fallen. One of the things that we end up doing when it comes to church discipline, which is just a, it's just a huge mistake, and that is we look at church discipline and as, as, as solely for the purpose of restoring the person who's fallen into sin. And that is not the case. Church discipline also exists to uphold the honor of God because God is holy. And church discipline also exists uh, to uh, keep the church pure. Sometimes, let's face it, most of the time, church discipline does not result in the restoration of the person. But we're not, we're not pragmatists simply saying, well, well, we'll do this if we think it's going to work. No, there's much more at stake, and that is protection of the body, purification of the body, and the body's witness. So, I've been postponing this as long as possible. Let's now look at verse 1. It is actually reported there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. 
And so in verse 1, we have the report. And uh, Paul, and I'm, I'm going to uh, use the term porneia, which is the, the, the Greek term. That's a word that, that should resonate with you uh, even in English, right? Porneia. Um, and, and I'm going to use it for a specific reason. Now, Paul says porneia is actually reported. Now, remember, Chloe's people, back in chapter 1, verse 11, Chloe's people had actually come and given Paul a report about the Corinthian church. Remember that? And of course, what is the first thing that Paul deals with in terms of the report from Chloe's people? Well, the division that exists, right? And um, some people wonder, well, I mean, this just seems so much worse than division. Why does Paul deal with the division first and then wait to deal with this? And, and, and I would suggest to you that, um, that this is not a matter of, in a sense, weighing sin here. This is a matter of Paul actually diagnosing that the Corinthians' fundamental problem was arrogance or pride, and that manifests itself in divisions. And it could well be that this situation that Paul describes here could have been one of the divisive issues in the church. That could have actually created um, uh, certain uh, taking sides against other people as far as how they, they fell out in terms of this particular situation. And so Paul says, it is actually reported among you. Now, you know, you know the great thing about, about Greek is people think that when they learn Greek, they're all automatically going to have like now the, the technical, specific, precise, accurate knowledge of what the text says. I want to just tell you that that's just a big, giant myth. In fact, when you start looking at the text and you're not looking at a translation, what you start to realize is how many different options you have for translation. The thing about reading a translation is you've had other people make those decisions for you. And so here, Paul uses a word that, that, mean, that, that could mean just actually, which we'll talk about what that means in a second, or maybe undoubtedly, it is undoubtedly reported right? Or it may be, in short, it is reported. Now, let me just, let me just show you the way that the, uh, understanding this word plays out in the interpretation. Uh, one commentator that I like a lot, David Garland, says that this should be taken as in short and just, in a sense, connecting it back with chapter 4. So it goes something like this, um, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or, or with a spirit? of uh, uh, love and gentleness. Um, In short, it's reported among you. In other words, there's a really tight connection of I'm going to be coming to you, and in short, it has to do with this issue. Okay, And that's, that's possible, but I don't think that that's what Paul's saying. I think that when Paul says, it is actually reported among you, right? that kind of captures it a little bit just by the tone, right? It is actually reported. In other words, actually goes to underscore the shock and the dismay of the report. Be something like, like this. You actually believe that? Right? It's like, I can't believe that you believe that. Well, this is, it's actually reported. I am utterly shocked. I'm utterly dismayed at this report. And here's what the report is. 
is that there is porneia among you. Well, this is Corinth. (laughs) It's not like this is big news. There's porneia among you. That that is among you. That's the location of the, the offense, not the realm of the report. There's porneia among you. What's porneia? Well, porneia in its most general sense would be all, all unlawful sexual intercourse. Okay? Now, in the Greco-Roman world, porneia was socially acceptable. Okay? In fact, there were slogans and cliches and things that um, expressed how accepted porneia was. There was one common slogan that said, a concubine is for your daily needs, a mistress is for pleasure, and a wife is for bearing children. So, I mean, you had not only just... um, the idea of, of a wife, she's just a child-bearer. You actually had two different categories of sexual gratification. Right? So porneia was something that was, that was acceptable, socially acceptable within um, the Greco-Roman world. And so to simply just kind of say, uh, just translate the word porneia as immorality, Garland says, just seems too tame and too sanitized to convey Paul's revulsion. Paul's actually saying here that there is, there is sexual sin that exists among you. Um, Garland recommends whoredom, and although I agree that that's, that's sort of one of those shocking, um, you know, disgusting words, that's probably not the best way to even go about this, because that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. So there is, there is porneia among you. And then Paul says this, such a kind of porneia, which is not even among the Gentiles. Now, when, when Paul says such a kind, it could, be, it could be one of two things that Paul's getting at. He could either be saying that the immorality or porneia that's reported among you is, 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 is sort of a general thing that is going on. And there is also such a kind that is more specific, okay? So in other words, it could be that immorality is rampant among you, but there's also a certain kind of immorality that is among you. Or Paul could have just been simply defining porneia, and I think that's what he's probably doing, which was reported. Now notice the way that he describes this. There is such a kind of porneia, and the text just actually just says, which is not even among the Gentiles. Our English Bibles will fill in the verb, so the idea is which is not even practiced among the Gentiles or accepted among the Gentiles or tolerated among the Gentiles. But you get the idea. Um, In other words, what Paul's saying is, listen, Christian church, church of God in Christ at Corinth, there's a report that there is a, a kind of porneia among you that is not even common nor condoned among the pagans. You know it's bad when the Romans think it's icky. 
right? I mean, this is, this is so bad. So this is not even common. It's not condoned. This, this, this observation, by the way, when he says it's not even among the Gentiles, is designed to actually demonstrate the revolting nature of the porneia. Now, here's, here's one of the problems. Before we get to the specifics, one of the problems that we have is the more and more our culture becomes... Um, saturated with porneia, the less Christians are shocked. The more and more our culture is bombarded and saturated with porneia, and the more and more acceptable it is culturally, socially, the less Christians are shocked. And the less Christians are shocked, the more vulnerable they are to acceptance. Now, don't make any mistake about it. We're nowhere near first century sexual ethics of the Greco-Roman world. We're, we're not. I know that we'd like to think that these are the worst of times. Okay? But they're not. Um, are they worse than they were 25 years ago? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes for a very specific reason. And that is because of the accessibility that is now available on the internet and on your phone, and on basically any handheld device. Um, When when I was growing up, which actually just wasn't all that long ago, the idea of pornography was, was, um, was, was frowned upon. You didn't even have to be a Christian to sort of look down on pornography. There, there were, you know, maybe more refined versions of it that, that were a little more sophisticated and, and acceptable. But the idea of pornography was not something that was socially acceptable. And on top of that, if you were to actually um, try to look at pornography, it took work. It took effort. The right guy had to be working at the 7-Eleven. Okay? Now, it is so accessible, and it's not just any old pornography. It is such a kind (laughs) as does not even exist among Gentiles. Right? As this happens, the church becomes less and less sensitive to the issue of sexual immorality. And it's not just pornography. It is, it is homosexuality. It is basically all, all forms of porneia. The more and more they, uh, the, the church is bombarded, the more and more acceptable these things become. Paul expresses shock, dismay, dismay. 
And this is the content of the porneia that's not even practiced among Gentiles. He says that someone has his father's wife. That actually introduces the kind of porneia here. Notice, someone. Paul does not name the offender, although the offender is most definitely known among the Corinthians, and probably even to Paul. Someone, and then here's, here's the expression, has his father's wife. A father's wife would be his stepmother. Has is present tense and actually indicates, uh, sometimes this, this, this very kind of language is used in terms of marriage, although that's not certainly required here, but has his father's wife indicates some sort of permanent relationship, not just some sort of single occasion. Okay. In other words, this man is in uh, an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. By the way, I think stepmother is, is clear because if it was otherwise, Paul could have very easily um, expressed that. Plus, in the holiness code of Leviticus 18, what is prohibited is relations with one's mother and one's father's wife, which would mean stepmother. Now, of course, the details are lacking, and for that we can probably be thankful. I mean, is this woman divorced from this guy's father? Are they still married? Is the father dead? Is the father alive? And the reason that none of that is brought into play is because it all ends up being irrelevant in a sense. It it ends up actually not even being important. It doesn't even matter. Something else that we, can, that we can conclude about the text is that since the woman is not addressed, she's clearly outside of the church. Paul's going to say, you're to put the man out. doesn't say anything about the woman. The woman is probably um, not a believer. But here's, here's the, the, the reality is that the Mosaic Holiness Code in Leviticus chapter 18 actually forbade this kind of relationship. In fact, in Leviticus 18, Moses actually lays out all kinds of prohibitions sexual relationships that are prohibited with, uh, in the law of God. Well, here's the other part. Is that Paul, by the way, the Bible is the authority, okay? The Bible's the authority. And so if the only thing that prohibited such a relationship was the law, that would be enough, all right? But Paul actually, in a sense, has already appealed to the fact that that even Roman law and custom would have prohibited this kind of relationship. In other words, what Paul's doing is he's showing how repulsive and how revolting and how disgusting this relationship actually is. I mean, let's face it, if it was too disgusting for the Romans, that it must have been really bad. You would think, you would think that this would deflate their pride. I mean, shouldn't this despicable level of sin shock them into humility? 
Have you ever been just sort of cruising along in your Christian life and all of a sudden you do something or say something that shocks you? Where did, where did that come from? Or better yet, who was that? In a sense, what happens when, when sin is exposed in, in us is that it humbles us, right? When sin is exposed in us, um, it, uh, automatically, however well we thought we were doing, that illusion has now just been obliterated. Whenever sin is exposed in us, um, and, 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 and we see it, and we own it, and we recognize it, we're actually humbled, reminded how much we need Christ, how much we need the grace of God, how much we need the cross, how much we need the blood of Jesus. In other words, there is, a, there is an incompatibility between maintaining a high opinion of oneself and a, and a sense of spiritual pride and actually knowing the sin of our own heart. Knowing the sin of our own heart, having it exposed, will humble us if we see it. And of course, that's the key, Right? If we see it. Because if you just go through life thinking that you're a cut above. You're a few, you're a few steps ahead of everybody else. You're a little spiritually better. You're more mature. You're not like them. Wow, what a dangerous place to be. What a dangerous place to be. And sometimes what God will do to us when we, when we start to think more highly of ourselves than we ought is, is that God will expose something within our hearts that, that actually once we see it, it should shock us. That's what Paul's trying to do to the Corinthians. You're not nearly as spiritual as you think. You're not nearly as awesome as you think. You're not nearly as mature as you think. In fact, you have a kind of sin going on in your assembly that even the Romans don't do. And when they do do, somebody does do that, they look at that and they say, that's awful, anathema. But verse 2 has got to be one of the most flabbergasting verses, right? You've become arrogant. I mean, to me, this is, this is the, uh, this is the stunning thing about this. It's not that Christians can fall into really awful, disgusting, revolting sin. If you've been around long enough, you know that Christians do all kinds of terrible things. The real shocker here is the Corinthians had become proud. You're puffed up, Paul says, and these, and you haven't mourned instead. 
So that the one who's done this deed would be removed from your sight. You are puffed up. You're inflated. You're proud. You're arrogant. You're conceited. This is the very same word. Paul's going to use this word. By the way, Paul uses this word more in 1 Corinthians than all of his other letters combined. That ought to tell us something. You're puffed up. Here's this sin that's not even practiced among Gentiles and it's existing among you and and you are puffed up. In fact, the way that Paul puts it is in a, a, a perfect participle which has the idea of this is not only your current position or condition, but this is this has become somewhat of a permanent condition for you. You've become, you've become puffed up and you're in a state of arrogance. You're in a state of conceit. And you, you know the danger of arrogance or conceit is that it is always self-deceptive, right? Always. Because if you're arrogant, you're first of all deceived about yourself, right? And if you're deceived about yourself, then you're deceived just about everything else. Paul says, <laughs> you are puffed up. And, and so here's, here's the question. What were they puffed up about? What were, they, what were they proud about? Now, some people actually argue that what Paul's saying at this point, this is actually, I think, very important. Some people would say that the Corinthians were just simply proud in spite of the porneia. So, so this really was just a condition of the Corinthians not really recognizing the true condition of the church and somewhat ignoring that sin on purpose and continuing in their false spiritual pride. David Garland is one that takes this, this position. He says, they are not puffed up because this man flouts taboos, but in spite of it. The problem then is not that they applauded this incestuous relationship, but that they ignored it. He goes on, it's more likely then that the church ignored this man's sin because perhaps of his higher social status and wealth than because of some theological stance that encouraged the absence of restraint. He concludes, he says, most in the church probably deemed it inexpedient or impossible to confront an an influential figure on the matter of sexual immorality. And so this idea of you've become proud, basically just saying you really have no reason to be proud because you've got this sin going on, but even in spite of this, you're ignoring it and continuing in your pride. That's possible. That's possible. But what seems more likely to me is that they were proud because of the pornea. In other words, they were proud because they were tolerating the pornea. They were proud because this man and his relationship had become a badge of their freedom in Christ and of their tolerance and of their liberty. Look how, look how broad-minded we are. Look how large-hearted we are. Look how tolerant we are. 
And in fact, we're, we are so spiritual that we are free from all human restrictions. You think, that, that sounds almost impossible. Well, let me put it in, in language that, that will resonate. The Corinthians were proud of themselves because they had become an affirming church. You see, that's the language today, isn't it? An affirming church. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't hold to those old standards and we affirm everybody, no matter what they do, no matter how they behave. No matter how they identify themselves, we, we affirm them and, and we affirm them in their identity. You see, if I'd have said we affirm them in their sin, that wouldn't have been accurate, right? Because what don't you say today? You don't say sin. We affirm them in their identity. We affirm them in their you understand the language starts to get a little complicated. We affirm them in their freedom, but they're not really free because they were born that way. We affirm them in their genetics. Paul says you're boasting because you think you're so tolerant because you accept this. You know, it's interesting in the scripture a number of times Pride and sinful corruption are often connected together. Pride and sinful corruption. Even even Hezekiah, he became proud in his heart and acted wickedly. Paul says, you, you're so progressive. It's amazing. You're so liberal. You're so generous. You're so charitable. You are so loving, just like Christians ought to be. I applaud you. No, it's not what Paul says. In fact, what Paul says is, instead, you should have mourned. You should have been broken hearted. You should have grieved. The first clause is a statement of fact. You've become proud. The second is a question, is a question that basically expects an, an of course answer. Should you not have mourned instead? Yes. The idea is, is you should have been grieved. You should have been filled with sadness Your heart should have been absolutely broken over this. Why? Because mourning is an expression of both horror over the sin and of repentance. And so they should have mourned because of the weight of the sin. They should have mourned because of the scandal of the sin. They should have mourned because this relationship was an affront to a holy God. You have to understand that in in our society, we can easily become duped into being 
quote, affirming people because we start thinking more about the people than about the God the people are sinning against. When we, when we start making excuses for people in their sin and we start trying to figure out how to, how to sidestep people's sin at, at, at that very point, do you know what we've done? We have lost sight of the holiness of God. And so they should have mourned because this was an affront to God. They should have mourned because, because this was a, a, a scandalous sin that, that then became a negative witness to their community. They should have mourned because, because this sin was like a cancer in their church. Paul says, you're all puffed up. You should have been broken. You should have, you should have been weeping. And then, then the last clause. In order that the one doing this should be removed from your midst. In other words, what, what Paul's saying is the grief that you should have had should have resulted in you removing him from your church. The grief you should have had should have resulted in you acting by excommunicating him. So the, the, the very idea, by the way, of removal is to be taken out, to be expelled, to be excommunicated. It is, the, uh, it is an act of discipline. Paul says you should have been so broken hearted that you should have that you should have acted and acted swiftly. Instead, you became all arrogant and puffed up, thinking, look how tolerant we are. This seems awfully relevant to me. So for Paul, the horror and the dismay is not only the revolting nature of the sin, but also the fact that the Corinthians were not only not doing anything about it, but were puffed up. Paul can't believe it. He's beside himself. For the Corinthians, their tolerance was really nothing but a display of their own arrogance. And again, I, I want you to put this in terms of, of our own day. I want you to think about the way this fits today. Their tolerance was nothing but a display of their own arrogance. Why? Because they viewed themselves as having a more loving standard than God. They, they didn't need to do anything with this man and, and, and this relationship other than boast in their tolerance and their love and their freedom. You have to understand this because this is, this is something that we're constantly tempted by in our society. Whenever we put our own standard above God's, it is pure pride. 
you know, frankly, it just gets sickening after a while. This preacher, that pastor, this theologian, it's like dominoes. I've been rethinking what the Bible says about homosexuality. I've been rethinking about uh, gay marriage. I've been rethinking gender issues. And, um, and I'm just coming to a different place. You know what that is? It's pure, unadulterated arrogance. Submission to the word of God means that we humble ourselves under God's authority and believe what he says, no matter what society says. The minute that we start elevating our own opinions, thinking that somehow we're loving, do you know what we're saying? We're more loving than God. We start to say, we're so wise. We're so sophisticated. Well, we're wiser and more sophisticated than God. See, you can either be sort of the old-fashioned simple-minded person that just believes what it says. And you'll be a laughing stock. Or you can be really sophisticated and very accepting. And young people, you need to you need to listen. There is such a huge pressure on you to reshape your views on what's right and what's wrong. And you get it more and more from all different quarters. And the minute that you call evil good, And good, evil, you've set yourself above Almighty God. Better to be thought a simple-minded hillbilly than to be well-respected from the wise of this world. That wisdom, Paul has already told us, is foolishness. And so we need to watch out because pride will turn around and affirm what God condemns. We need to be careful that we never take sin lightly and never dismiss what God says. Now, one last thing as we look at this, these first two verses tonight. What's the first order of business for Paul in this situation? It's actually simple. Remove him. Remove him. Paul's first order of business is the removal of the offender. Notice this, verse 2, removed from your midst. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven. What do you think that's a reference to? It's a metaphor for what? Removing him. Right? Verse 9. Notice, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate. Verse 11. I actually wrote to you not to associate. Last clause. Not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul's first order of business is to remove this guy. 
And I want us to think about this because what Paul saw was something very different than what the Corinthians saw. The Corinthians saw their broad-mindedness and their, their, their loving charity. What Paul saw was the heinousness of this offense was a danger to the body that required immediate action, and that action was removal. Notice there's no... Um, there's no Matthew 18, 15 to 8, 17 process mentioned here, right? The, the, the steps, go to your brother, take two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. For Paul, this is, this is simple. I take it to mean here that because there's, there's no sin, either, either Paul knew that this had happened, but there's no indication that anything like this had happened, all right? I think rather... Paul was convinced that the nature of this sin had now gone beyond just simple confrontation. In other words, the sin was so heinous, the sin was, was, was so obvious that everybody knew it was profoundly wrong. When you go to somebody in a Matthew 18, 15 sense, what are you trying to do? You're trying to convince them of their sin so that they repent. Paul was convinced that this man and the church already knew it. This is beyond those steps. This was a cancer that needed to come out yesterday. What was the nature of the discipline? Well, actual removal for the sake of the body. (laughs) This is, this is going to be hard for some of you. Removal means removal. Some pastors and theologians, some that I, I respect very, very much, actually just sort of argue that, that what excommunication is, is the person loses the privilege of being able to go to the Lord's table. No communion. They'll lose other privileges too, like you can't teach Sunday school anymore or whatever. Um, That kind of discipline may be appropriate in certain circumstances, but what Paul has in view here is the idea that the person needs to be cast out. And there's a very simple reason that Paul's going to explain a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I want to dispel the myth that church discipline is unloving. Church discipline is actually the most loving thing you can do as a church when it is warranted. And it's loving in two very clear ways. First, it's loving to the body. If you come in and you show me your arm that got uh, caught in, uh, in your wood chipper and it's all chewed up and you've, and it's, and you've got gangrene and I look at it and I say, you know what? I think you'll be okay. I've seen worse. It's okay. Um, Neosporin. I'd put some Neosporin on it, and um, 
I think you'll be okay. And you say, well, why would you tell them that? I don't want to alarm them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I mean, they're going to have to emotionally come to grips with the fact that their arm has gangrene is going to fall off. I couldn't bring myself to be the one to break them that bad news. No, actually, the, 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 the most loving thing to do is to say, you know what? Uh, unless that arm comes off, you're going to die. And it needs to come off now, and it's going to hurt. But it needs to come off. And so church discipline is loving for the body. But church discipline is also loving for the offender. Because unless the offender comes to grips with his or her sin, and unless the offender comes to repentance, the offender will eternally perish. And so I, I, I want us to think in terms, when it comes to church discipline, think of the, the long-term effects of what real love looks like, not just the short-term effects that are governed by your own sense of convenience. You know, normally that's how we, that's how we define the loving thing to do. What ends up being most convenient for me? And the most loving thing to do is to be truthful and to be faithful to God's word and to deal truthfully with people's souls. Years ago, don't try to figure out who this was because you, you won't be able to. But years ago, the elders were having an intense debate. over whether a young lady who was was under church discipline and was about to be excommunicated because she was unrepentant should be allowed to still come to church. Charlie may remember these discussions. The sympathetic sounding thing was this. If we put her out, how's she going to hear the word? If we put her out, how, how is she going to be loved and supported? The question actually should be, if we leave her in, how will our young people remain unaffected? How will our young people remain uninfluenced? The loving thing to do is not to maintain a level of leaven within the lump so they can hear the word. Here, here's, here's the reality. When, when, when you're talking about a lost person, and Paul's going to deal with this in 9 through 13. When you're talking about a lost person who has never come to know Christ, they may be an adulterer, they may be a fornicator, they may be a homosexual, they may be a thief, they may be a swindler, and they need to hear the word. And you know what? This should be a welcoming place to people that don't know Jesus, right? Okay. There is a fundamentally different category once you start talking about this. 
You're not talking about a lost person that doesn't know the word, that needs to hear the word, doesn't know Jesus, and needs to come to know Jesus. You're talking about somebody who has heard the word and has rejected it. You're talking about somebody that professes to know Jesus and yet refuses to obey. You're talking about a category that is fundamentally different than the simple category of a lost person. So when Jesus says you are to treat that person as a publican and a a sinner and a tax collector, you have to understand that doesn't mean just treat him like an ordinary old lost person that's never heard. That idea in Jewish culture was they were to be cast out of the covenant community. And when church members refuse to do their duty and vote to remove somebody that should be removed because they can't find it in their heart to do such an unloving thing, don't know what love is. The loving thing is to say, we lovingly stand together and say to you, with tears and a broken heart and mourning that your conduct is so contrary to what the word of God says a Christian's conduct should be that we must stand together as the voice of Christ and say you must be removed. We hope that you're repentant. Now Paul is going to go into the redemptive effect of excommunication. He actually calls it turning them over to Satan. If you think this sounds tough, you haven't heard anything yet. Right? And so, what a lesson for us. What a lesson for us. Our definition and practice of love needs to be governed by the word of God. You don't get to make up what love looks like. You have to comply with the one who is love, the living God himself. Let's pray. Father, we know these are hard things. We pray that you'd help us to to embrace the hard things. Father, we pray that you'd protect us from being conformed to this world. We pray especially for our young people. Lord, there's so much pressure on them to conform, and we pray that you'd help them to be strong, help them to stand firm. Lord, help them to be winsome and kind and loving and compassionate and truthful and loyal and faithful. Father, we pray that as we make our way through this passage that you would give us clarity, strengthen our resolve to be a biblical church that's faithful to the standards of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 
To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.